Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Dr. Anders Asland is the chairman of the International Advisory Council at the Center for Social and Economic Research, also known as CASE. He was as well an economic advisor to the government of Russia under Boris Yeltsin from 1990 to 1994. They're not particularly liked by Mr. Putin, who actually doesn't like them all the way back to Khrushchev, and economic advisor to the government of Ukraine from 1994 to 1997. His book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy, details how Vladimir Putin, in fact, consolidated control over Russia by appointing his closest associates and friends, to head state enterprises like the FSB, the Federal Security Service, the judiciary, the KGB, I mean, you've got it all controlled right there, and enriched his business friends with preferential government deals, billionaires. Now, much of this wealth, we find out from Dr. Aslan's book, has been hidden offshore in the UK and the US, where companies with anonymous owners and black money transfers are allowed to thrive Dr. Asland, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us, sir. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. So what is, how would you just, generic question out of the gate, how would you describe the world economic reality today, less than a week after Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Uh, If you put it like this, the Russian economy is weak. Uh, It was $2.3 trillion in 2013. Today, it's $1.5 trillion. But the private wealth of uh, uh, the Russian elite held offshore is about $1 trillion. We have rather good numbers for the money that goes out of Russia, but we know little about what happens to it afterwards. And my assessment is that one quarter of that belongs to Putin and his friends. So a fair assessment is that half of that uh, quarter trillion of dollars belong to President Putin himself, $125 billion. Good Lord. That's a massive number. Indeed. So your book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Fundamentals, Putin and His Pals, as I understand it, grew powerful and immensely wealthy by profiting personally from uh, Russia's forays into international business banking and trade. It it is the track which your book's subtitle addresses that I also find very interesting, the path from market economy to kleptocracy. So before Putin had established a market economy, he took personal advantage of and used for his own benefit what had been there when he got there, yes? Well, it it functioned like this. Uh, Russia in the 1990s was messy. But there was an attempt to build a market economy, uh, democracy, but that failed first, and a bit of a rule of law. Uh, During Putin's first period, uh, 2000 to 2004, Putin tried to be everything to every person. This is the time when you get the most positive assessments of him. And he actually carried out good economic reforms uh, then. Uh, But then, in his second term, It was the oil boom, and Putin didn't need to do anything. He had the power, and he just consolidated the power. And after that, he started 
first nationalizing, uh, renationalizing uh, big companies that have been uh, privatized, and then he passed them on to his friends. So he has four friends from St. Petersburg that are his main uh, business uh, partners. That he, one of them he has known since he was uh, 12 or 13 uh, years old, and he has made them. So they are simply taking money, most of all from Gazprom, Russia's big um, state gas company, and they do it primarily in two ways. One is that they get uh, privileged uh, public procurement, uh, and uh, then they uh, uh, increase the price twice or thrice to what it should be, and the other is asset stripping. Uh, so these friends have taken all the media assets from Gazprom, uh, petrochemical uh, companies, a lot of uh, gas production, and um, uh, uh, certainly all fin financial assets. So, so this is uh, really a piracy on the state that is led by, the, by uh, the president. And Putin has had full control over Gazprom since 2001. So my view is that Gazprom should not be allowed to deal with the international financial system because this is, by all definitions, an organized crime syndicate. Yeah, there's no way to stop them because Putin's friends control the police and the judiciary. Well, the international community can do so. If Gazprom was 1% of as large as it is now, nobody would like to deal with it because the legal risk would be considered too great. Now it's so big, so it's too big not to deal with. Right. I mean, domestically, nobody can interfere with him because his friends control the uh, the, the investigative um, arm of government and, and controls the jud judiciary. But uh, so let's talk about the international end of things. Russia was removed from SWIFT banking system, from the world banking system. What does that mean to Russia? And does that make Putin's situation with his friends potentially precarious? Uh, yes. What we have been seeing now in the last week is quite dramatic. All of a sudden, people have realized that this is not the Cold War. This is a hot war. Uh, and uh, Putin is not a Brezhnev. He's rather more similar to Adolf Hitler. I would compare uh, Putin's attack on Ukraine uh, this week with Adolf Hitler's attack on uh, Poland. In, on the 1st of uh, September 1939, and all of a sudden this is aching uh, through. So on the financial side, I think that what uh, uh, President Biden did uh, was the most effective. Block five of the big state uh, banks completely from uh, the international uh, system. The U.S. can do it itself by saying you are not allowed to deal with uh, U.S. dollars in any way, and then restricting uh, financial opportunities uh, uh, to uh, certain big, uh, uh, essentially state, uh, state companies, and prohibiting dealings with uh, uh, Russian government debt. And this means that something like 70% of all financial access, international financial access to Russia has been closed. And you and I can guess that soon it will be, be much more. So Russia is very swiftly moving to uh, Iranian sanctions. And of course, uh, the West has now decided to freeze 
Russia's uh, central bank reserves, which are $640 billion. So Russia is quickly becoming in a hopeless uh, situation. Uh, right now, uh, or that, that is on Friday, the Russian ruble was worth $85 uh, per US dollar. Uh, I saw one private bank that predicted that on Monday, tomorrow, it will be 150 rubles per $1. That is that half the value of the Russian ruble would disappear over the weekend. It's, this is this dramatic. So so-called fortress Russia is much weaker than people thought. It's not enough to have uh, international reserves. You have, uh, must have access to them in order to be a relevant financial power. Yeah. Dr. Asland, the um, the sanctions and the ones I just mentioned that the EU has lowered now on Belarus, will they ultimately, and what you've told us, um, the situation with SWIFT and the lack of access to the international banking reality for Russia, is this going to have the potential to push, to back Putin into a corner where he finds tries to find a way to get out of this situation he's gotten himself into? Or do you have concerns he'll just keep pushing his foot on the gas pedal? I'm an optimist. I think that uh, uh, President Putin's attack on Ukraine was such madness that he will lose his power on this. Who will oust him? I can't say. Will it be the FSB? Will it be the military? I don't think that it will be the businessmen. It could be uh, that uh, people are really starting protesting. What we have seen today throughout much of the world has been massive uh, protests. Also in uh, uh, Moscow, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, Novosibirsk and uh, St. Petersburg. So I think that uh, Putin is, has really put himself in, uh, in a very impossible situation, but not directly because of the economic consequences, but simply because this is madness. Uh, my assessment is that Russia in the period 2014-2020 lost as much as 2.5% of GDP each year because of the Western sanctions and generally uh, very bad uh, governance, uh, that is massive corruption. And uh, uh, Russia had no economic growth at all during these seven years. I don't think that Russia will have any economic growth for the foreseeable future. The question now is rather how fast will the Russian uh, GDP fall from an already uh, ba uh, bad situation and who will uh, uh, react uh, against it. Given the powers in Russia, I would guess uh, that it's the FSB, the former KGB uh, generals, there are four of them on the, uh, the dominant Security Council. The Security Council today is like the Politburo and the old Soviet times. And I think that these are the people who are most likely uh, to oust uh, Putin. But uh, the top of Russia today is so closed that nobody from the outside actually knows much about it. What about Ukraine? How would you assess Ukraine's situation? You were the economic advisor to the Ukraine government from 94 to 97. How do you assess their situation now and going forward? 
I've been greatly impressed with how Ukraine has operated in the last four days during the war. You know, the normal idea is that Russia is authoritarian and well-organized, and Ukraine is uh, an open, free society, democratic, but uh, quite messy. Strangely, now we are seeing the, the opposite. The Russian military doesn't seem to get anything wrong. They have massive losses of men and uh, uh, material, and uh, they don't seem to know what we are doing. They haven't ac accomplished any of their uh, targets in spite of all their uh, military resources. The Ukrainian, on the contrary, have been disciplined have strong morale, and uh, they know what they are doing, and they are doing it amazingly well with much more limited resources. In uh, one of the assessments, uh, reviews of your book, Russia's Crony Capitalism, it's written about the money that was taken offshore by Putin's friends, and by Putin too, I imagine, the super wealthy class, the plutocracy, and it's written, much of this wealth has been hidden in offshore havens in the United States and the United Kingdom, where companies with anonymous owners and black money transfers are allowed to thrive. Um, is that money accessible? And how, how does it work? How, how can it be that in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and in other, maybe other Western countries as well, this goes on? Well, it goes like this. Uh, traditionally, Russian money went on through Cyprus, not go through other uh, several different ways. For if it's seriously dirty money, uh, uh, they get half a dozen shell companies on top of one another in Cyprus. Then they move it to British Virgin Islands, which is not a banking center, only a, a company formation center. And you get another half dozen companies or so there. And then you take it to Cayman Island, which is the, the central offshore haven in, in the world. And there you get another half a dozen uh, offshore companies. Then you go to Wilmington, Delaware, uh, where you have a, a couple of million of anonymous offshore companies. And uh, then you can invest it anywhere. Uh, Cayman Islands is actually the second biggest investor in U.S. securities, bonds and stocks. And uh, with $1.9 trillion of investment in uh, U.S. securities, uh, second only to Japan and before the U.K. and this little country called China. So this is something that is not at all known or understood. Cayman Islands has 60,000 inhabitants, but 158 banks. And a fair guess, only a guess, is that 200 to $400 billion of Russian money goes through that and wow. lands in the United States completely wow. legally. Now I know when I was in the Cayman Islands why there's so many beautiful boats. <laughs> and nice hotels. <laughs> We're going to speak now with a former commanding general of the 101st Airborne Division, the United States Army, a storied division, Major General Jeffrey Schlosser. And one of the questions, one of the points that's brought up regularly is if Putin moves his forces beyond the tolerance level and he starts to uh, interfere, and if he crosses the border into a NATO nation, then it's Article 5 of the NATO Convention, and all the countries have to step up to protect that nation. How capable are they? I don't know. 
But generally, it's been conceded that it would end up being Russia versus the United States, American military versus Russian military. And let's talk to General Schlosser about this. His book is Marathon War. gets tremendous reviews. I'm just finishing the book. It is an outstanding read. General Schlosser, good to have you back. How are you, sir? I'm well, Roy. Thanks for having me back. How does Russia's attack on Ukraine compare to other serious challenges we've experienced, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, 9-11 and its aftermath, Iran developing nuclear weapons. Where does, just from the just from the global perspective, where does it fit? You know, I think it's uh, very similar, and this is going to sound chilling, but it sounds very similar to the beginning of World War II. You know, invasions into uh, Poland, for an example. You know, earlier and later, also other invasions around, you know, either around the Soviet Union and also around Nazi Germany. Um you know, I certainly hope that it doesn't yield to something, a much larger conflict, but it, uh, it's very chilling. I, I wouldn't compare it, though. You know, I, I do believe, and you mentioned earlier about uh, Putin putting his nuclear forces on heightened alert. I, I don't think this is a Cuban missile crisis uh, relived. So why do you think it's, it's, uh, it's an ego play, a power play that he's engaging in when he does that? A response to the, to the sanctions like the uh, removal of Russia's access to international banking? You know, Roy, I regard Putin as, it goes all the way back to his roots as a KGB operative. Uh, you know, he uses deception, disinformation, and uh, movements like that to put on uh, his you know, nuclear forces on a heightened uh, alert. That's meant to throw off a bunch of people and say, my gosh, what are we doing here? Maybe we ought to back down or back off some of these sanctions or, you know, what you've been seeing now is in some of these nations, he's actually causing them to uh, up their uh, investment inside uh, their own protection, such as Germany, their own self-defense, um, to go above 2% GDP, which is a bit unheard of uh, in, in certainly my lifetime uh, involved in Germany and, and the defense thereof. Um, I think he's going to cause others, neutral countries like Finland and Sweden, to really relook uh, their position and potentially go with NATO. Uh, so this is a, uh, you know, he's going back and forth. I regard this as just one more, it's not saber rattling. It's, this is a position that he takes he hopes that it will cause us to go and take a harder look at what we're doing and maybe back down. Truly, I don't think it's going to cause us to back down. And I don't mean us as the United States. I mean the EU plus, you know, uh, the United States, Canada. You're seeing Australia. You're seeing Japan. They all are trying to uh, show that this is not acceptable uh, in, the, in this world order. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, you mentioned Sweden and Finland. Finland uh, has consistently been threatened by Putin whenever it's been suggested they might want to join NATO, and they did it again uh, over the last several days, and the Finnish defense minister said, hey, we can take care of ourselves. We have a very powerful air force, and uh, we have a strong army, so don't threaten us. So there's a lot of backbone starting to be shown. I think so, too, and I think that... uh this is actually refreshing from perhaps our North American view. I mean, you know, in many cases, we I think we look to Europe to say, do more for your own defense. 
uh, you know, make more investments in your own uh, defense, get better training, uh, and, you know, and things of that nature. And I think you're going to see that as a result of this, you know, uh, regardless of what actually happens within Ukraine itself. And uh, this is going to, I think, uh, in some cases backfire on Putin, but it's very early in this uh, whole sequence to make any kind of, you know, conclusions, I think. I mean, there's early things that you can say, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot more to play out here. Uh, you know, the end is not this week uh, or next month. Based on your career as a military man, as a soldier, as a general, the commander of the 101st Airborne Division, and what a what an honor that is to be given that division with all of its history. And, and you took uh, decisions that you felt were right in Afghanistan because you didn't like and didn't accept the way you were being treated, General. But let's just look at this, this situation as it is on the ground from your experience, your perspective. The Russians appear to be having their noses bloodied by the Ukrainians. Does that surprise you? What does it speak to? I, I, I'm, at this point, Roy, I would not go that far to say, yes, they're having their nose bloodied, but that's, that's the nature of conflict and combat. Um, I don't think we've seen main Russian forces yet really engage. Uh, you know, I do believe that maybe Putin and his team, uh, his military may have miscalculated a little bit about just the ability of the Ukrainians and the willingness and the intent of the Ukrainians to defend themselves. Um, but I, we haven't seen anywhere near uh, what I think Russia can actually apply uh, against uh, the Ukrainians. So I think what you've seen are advanced forces. You've seen Spetsnats, that's uh, special forces for most of our listeners, in uh, what we would call advanced guard types of operations. They're trying to feel out, you know, especially in urban areas, they're trying to feel out weak points and also try to understand where else do they need the targets so that they can engage in, uh, actually uh, seize air superiority and do other things of that nature, which will allow them more unfettered access. This is early on in that game, and uh, yes, there's been casualties on both sides. I'm, I'm quite certain that the numbers are inaccurate, um, as they're currently being reported, uh, and there's clearly civilian casualties, but there's more to come. Yeah, the, he hasn't got uh, his whole force involved. If Putin were to move, and this has been a lot of speculation about this, if he were to move his military toward the Baltic nations or next door to Poland, where NATO soldiers are increasingly being stationed, American soldiers as well. If it, can you see a scenario developing where it actually becomes Article 5 and you have NATO actively involved, and you mentioned that it looked to you like the beginning of World War II, can you envision a scenario where NATO is at war with Russia? That's a chilling thought, but again, Roy, I, I do think that War is always ripe with miscalculation. You know, I talk a lot about it in my book. Uh, and, uh, you know, always trying to understand. You can always look at capabilities, but it's very hard to understand the intent of uh, your foe. And Putin, again, like I said, is a master of disinformation. And, and it's very challenging to figure out what exactly he his ultimate goal is and what he will put up with as far as, uh, you know, uh, declaring success. My guess would be is, is to get to your answer is, is if he miscalculated, if, if there was some kind of, you know, could potentially be a tactical blunder, uh, you know, made by low-level 
officers and soldiers that would cause a um, a conflict, not a conflict, but an actually a mishap to, uh, to occur. In other words, not really calculated, but it occurs along the say the Baltics. Um, yes, Article Five. I am quite certain that uh, NATO is united uh, together, and you've seen troop movements. Um, uh, you know, over the last several weeks, and obviously armament and not an awful lot of equipment that is quite capable that would elevate the level of this war to, you know, 21st century warfare rather than what I would, you know, say is like 20 or 30 years old, what you're seeing right now. And that would be very dangerous. And speaking with uh, Major General Jeffrey Schlosser, former commanding officer of the 101st Airborne Division, the United States Army, uh, including 15 months in Afghanistan. And his book is Marathon War, just uh, receives amazing uh, reviews, including for me. Uh, General Schlosser, miscalculations, I just want to pick on that word for a moment. And I watched President Biden, and I just wonder, and I don't know if I'm reading this correctly, but I wasn't very impressed with President Biden and his response. Am I, am I being too harsh? Well, you know, I think that they're unlike... And, you know, I've been pretty um, tough on this administration as far as their, how they actually did the Afghanistan decision and then also the withdrawal. I do think that they have done some refreshingly very interesting things. In other words, they used uh, intelligence in a way that I think took Putin aback. In other words, um, they were reading essentially his mail. Um, we knew what uh, he was planning to do. And then we took another step that you rarely see in conflict or in competition prior to combat, and we actually publicized it. So, I, you know, I, w- I would have to say there that the administration has done some very interesting things. Uh, what it didn't do, I, I think, is, is actually um, move enough forces fast enough to really cause uh, Putin to push back. And what it did do, and I think it's a huge strategic error, is it drew lines that basically caused ambiguity to go away. In other words, if you want to deter somebody, remain ambiguous. Never say, hey, I am not going to come to Ukraine's, uh, uh, you know, help with my own forces. Even if we had no intent to do that, I don't believe the administration should have ever said that. I think that was a blunder, and I think that uh, that... uh, really did not scare it. You know, that caused uh, Putin to say, well, can you tell you what? I've lived through sanctions before. Look at the Crimea. Uh, we can get past that. Uh, and especially the nature of these sanctions. Uh, you know, I mean, they still allow oil and gas uh, export, which is, you know, somebody once said that uh, you know, Russia was a gas station with a flag. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that uh, he, Putin was not deterred. And so, and I do say that that is, something that both the United States as well as the EU and NATO uh, could have done much better. General Schlosser, in our first conversation, and uh, we just mentioned Afghanistan a minute ago, in in our first conversation, you and I talked about Afghanistan and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, primarily by Americans. I don't think we did a good job in this country either. The Prime Minister of Canada, I don't think, distinguished himself uh, anything but but you had concerns that what happened in Afghanistan during the withdrawal simply is going to mean that there'll be more terrorist attacks like the ones experienced 20, 30 years ago uh, that will be forthcoming. Did that withdrawal by President Biden, do you think, and this has been speculated on a lot, do you think that that in fact gave 
Vladimir Putin a sense that, hey, I can push these people around. They're not going to stand up to me. Yes, I I believe that um, what looked like a what seemed to me to be a very uncoordinated withdrawal with our allies, and clearly including my gosh, the one right across the border to Canada, one of our strongest allies ever. I mean, uh, we left a lot of nations, a lot of the NATO nations that had been invested in Afghanistan for two decades, along with the United States. Um, on their own, almost essentially. In other words, it was a really extraordinary challenge for most most countries to be able to do just the normal things that you would expect. In other words, get their own citizens out of the country, especially you know, dual passport holders and things of like that, and then take care of the people that had been supporting their forces. I mean, you know, I, I talk about my in my book. I Canada was responsible was responsible for one of the toughest areas in Afghanistan, Regional Command South, you know, that Kandahar area, then all the way out to the west. And often had many Afghans who were supporting the Canadian forces there, as well as the Dutch forces there, and eventually the Brits, as well as some U.S. But getting those people back out of that country has proven to be extraordinarily challenging. By doing it the way we did, in other words, by basically making a decision and then so rapidly executing it without a lot of coordination, I think you you saw that uh, there was what I think you know Putin looked at and said, "Boy, that's one is disarray." To, you know, they really are not, their, America's trying to maybe go back in within its own borders um, and then maybe focus on a different area called China and the Indo-Pacific. And I think that gave them uh, a certain amount of uh, thought that uh, they could, in fact, do these kinds of, uh, um, you know, what I would call, is in, this was an invasion, obviously, of a, of a democracy. Um, I think it kind of, you know, it didn't hold the door open. That's much too far. But I, it did indicate that he thought that perhaps we were not going to have a strong uh, response or a strong enough response or even a coordinated response with our own allies. And I think that portion has been proven, proven wrong. I mean, we've definitely coordinated the heck out of this thing with the NATO allies uh, and others around the world that, have, uh, that see democracy as important. How do you, final question for you, how do you see, how do you project this all coming to an end. Do you think Putin's going to back off? Um, I'll just ask you how you think it's going to end. That's a great question. And I'll be honest with you know, all of our listeners is that, frankly, I don't know. I, Putin, again, I can, I can tell you what Russian capabilities are, and you haven't seen nearly, nearly them yet in the in Ukraine, uh, nor in the Black Sea or the Sea of Asno. Um, so there's a lot more there if he chooses to go that way. Shall he shoot, you know, sue for a piece quickly? You know, I don't think he's achieved what he wants to achieve. I mean, he, I think he wants to see basically a, a change of government and a neutral, not a, not a neutral country, excuse me, a country that leans towards Russia uh, in the Ukraine. He's not near achieving that at this point in time. And so I think that you'll see this continue out and there'll be more and further bloodshed. I don't believe that it will go beyond the borders of Ukraine. I do not believe this will become an Article 5 uh, NATO against uh, Russia um, conflict at this point in time. I don't think he is that, uh, well, I, there's too many words to use. I'll just say, well, I don't think he'll do that. Um, I think he'll pull back. Petition, I'm told, uh, in the state Duma, the uh, parliament, and they're looking to create the possibility for Putin's resignation. 
Something around 170,000 signatures. What effect will that have? I don't know. Let's ask our guest. Dr. Yuri Felstinsky, American-Russian historian. He's the author of a number of books on Putin and Russia, including The Corporation and Blowing Up Russia, which is uh, banned in Russia. Yuri, thank you very much uh, for the time. Do you think uh, petitions will have any effect at all in Russia on Putin's survival, or is it going to be his his friends who suddenly find themselves with not nearly as much money, access to as much money, because they've been cut off? Well, petition probably by itself doesn't really uh, important for Putin, and it's very questionable whether he ever would be informed about the existence of this petition. But what I think is more important that, surprisingly, I have to say, uh, the world very quickly became very united in its struggle against Putin's regime and in its support for Ukraine. I have to say that this is unbelievable. I mean, I was very skeptical, of course, softly speaking, about Putin from the very beginning. I was saying from 2014 that Putin is kind of trying to 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 push at, push us into the Third World War. But what's happening now, it's unbelievable. We hear from every corner, from every country, from every company that they're cutting their ties with Russia, with Russian businesses, with Russian uh, soccer, football uh, teams, etc., etc., etc. You know, American Express is stopping shipments yeah. to Russia, etc. Pardon? Formula One racing has canceled the Russian Grand Prix. Right. I mean, every, every, everybody, everybody. It's 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 like a, a water. You 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 open it and you cannot uh, stop the stream. Okay, I, and and I think this is the end. I think this is the end of Putin. One way or another, this is the end of Putin. Okay. Now, when he says, and he did, that he's putting nuclear forces on alert, high alert. What do you take from that? I think he's dangerous. I think he's sick. I think he's paranoid. I think at this point he's crazy. And his last speech, which was given like whatever, three days ago, when he started again to blackmail us with the punishment and weapons which he would use, he was sound like Hitler in, in his speeches in 1930s. But, but this is an indication of extreme weakness. When he's saying publicly who his uh, chief of staff, of uh, general staff, sorry, and uh, minister of defense that he is going to, to put nuclear arms on alert, when this is done publicly in front of cameras, uh, as for the whole world to see, this is an indication of uh, weakness. Uh, if he really would uh, want to do it, and probably this is done, but he would do it quietly, uh, secretly, as usually things are done in, in Russia. Um, I think what's happening is completely unexpected by Putin. I, I think he never expected this. 
Yeah, and his military is not doing as well as he expected. They're getting hurt. Well, this, uh, They're getting their noses no, bloody. Do not. No, I mean, uh, right now, uh, ob- objectively speaking, no one knows how many people was, were killed from, from both sides. It seems to be that they're not doing great. That's, that's true. This is probably not what was expected by Putin. This is true. But Russia, unfortunately, is still a powerful military power, which, what is very important, doesn't care how many people they would lose. You, you mentioned those soldiers who are conscripts. This, this is more than this. They were never told that they're going to be sent to Ukraine. They were told that they are sent to Belarus and to Ukrainian border for exercise. They did not know that they are going to be sent to, uh, you know, to, to real fight to die. On Twitter, we've been in touch with Royal Canadian Navy Lieutenant Commander James Brunn of HMCS Yellowknife. Lieutenant Commander Brunn posts memorable photos of Canadians at uh, war on Twitter. They really are amazing photographs, just of... You know, it could be your granddad or your dad or some your mom or your grandmom. It's they're just amazing, amazing photographs. And uh, so we've been able to establish a bit of a relationship with the ship, with HMCS Yellowknife and the crew, and we've established a relationship with uh, Lieutenant Commander Brun. You can find him on Twitter at Lebrun L E B U. I'm sorry, L E B R U N L E B R U N James eighty one. And Lieutenant Commander James Brunn joins us, if I can get this thing to work. will join us on the air. How are you, uh, Lieutenant Commander? Good to talk to you. I'm very well, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's been it's been like a couple of years uh, that I've been posting your photographs, and we've uh, traded a few d- tweets here and there, and we certainly uh, know, feel like we know the Yellowknife a little bit and know your crew a little bit and know you. Let me first of all say to you, thank you for your service. Thanks. Thanks very much for for saying that, sir. And I appreciate that you feel like you know the crew through the posts that I've been uh, making. That's that's exactly what I'm hoping for: is that we can sort of get in touch with Canadians and let them know what the Canadian sailors are doing around the world um, every day. Yeah, it's an amazing service, the Navy. Tell us a little bit about your path in the military, which did begin with the reserves, and then led you to a very exciting career in the regular forces. Uh, that's right. Yes, I joined uh, through HMCS Discovery, which is the Naval Reserve Unit in Vancouver, and I did that about 17 years ago. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, I, I've loved every minute of it. And after a few years, I knew that uh, you know it was a full-time job for me. So I made the transfer to the regular force, and uh, you know I haven't looked back. And one of the things that I love about it, actually, being at sea with the sailors in Yellowknife, is uh, it's it's a combined crew of regular force and reservists. So I, I actually the crew is 40 people. 12 of those are reservists. So they have regular jobs, uh, civilian jobs at home all across the country, and they you know decide to put those jobs on hold for a brief period of time, come to see with us on operations, and really contribute. So uh, it's been a fantastic ride. Yeah, I I was actually in the RCNR, and. Uh... Had held the esteemed rank of ordinary seaman standard, which was right at the bottom. And I've always said I fought very hard to stay there. 
I think you understand what that means. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Thank you for your service, sir. Uh, it was it was really an honor to uh, to have a very very minor role. Tell us though a bit about the about the ship. So you said the crew of about forty, a complement of forty, twelve reserves. The rest are regular crew. What sort of missions do you have? It's a coastal patrol vessel, right? Yes, sir. It's a Kingston class patrol ship. Um, it's also known by the name uh, Maritime Coastal Defense Vessels or MCDVs. Uh, primarily, it's a patrol ship conducting sovereignty patrols. Uh, up and down the coast of North America. We also have the ability to take on different kinds of payloads on our sweep deck. Um, so for bottom object inspections or for mine countermeasure work, things like that. But primarily we're used as patrol vessels, and, and that's what we're doing right now. Um, the ship is actually alongside in San Diego, aboard of our sister ship, Saskatoon, and the two ships are heading down uh, south on Operation Carib uh, right now. So so we're, we're being gainfully employed for Canadians uh, around the world. Well, I looked at, uh, you posted some photographs of Yellowknife on Twitter, and I saw what looked like in the background, like the deck of an aircraft carrier, which loomed rather large above, above <laughs> Yellowknife. But I'm thinking they're in San Diego. Life can't be that bad. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, yeah, no. We, we, as you said, we've we've got forty uh, we've got forty sailors on board. Um, we've also got an eight-person uh, U.S. Coast Guard law enforcement detachment that we're taking on our operation. So, forty-eight sailors. It's not a it's not a large ship, but these these Kingston class ships for Canada pack a big punch. They're uh, they're you know employed all around. We're we're heading down to South and Central America on this mission. We've got Kingston-class ships on the East Coast that are engaged in uh, op projection in Africa, capacity building with our partner nations there. So, so they really do a lot of good work, um, you know, much more impact than the size would suggest. Yeah, punching way above your weight. Um, yeah. uh, Lieutenant Commander, where do you get these wonderful, these really expressive photographs? You have one today that you, that you, uh, that you posted, and it's a corporal who's uh, attaching a cable to the front of a Sherman tank, and you can just, you can actually see the expression on this young man's face, young man in 1945, I think it was. Where do you get these great pics? So w one of the ways that I relax in my spare time is I like to go through the Library Archives Canada and uh, the Imperial War Museum Archives, the digital archives, uh, and look for these photos of Canadians, um, you know, serving their country at war. Um, and it's important to me to be able to share those with people because, you know, it's, I, we learn from these, these, our past, but also there's a bit of a connection. Uh, as you said, you know, sometimes uh, you could look in these photos and think, oh, that looks like my grandfather or my grandmother. Yeah. And something that's actually happened uh, a number of times since I've been posting these photos over the last few years is people have reached out to me and said, you know, that's my grandfather or that's my great uncle. Um, and, and we get a bit of a rapport going and I, you know, I form relationships with these people, which is, uh, which is really exciting for me. And it's something that I, I, I think I'm so fortunate to be able to do now with our ship's company to post these photos of the sailors doing the good work for Canada around the world. Uh, so that not only are people looking at the pictures of our past, but, you know, to know that we're continuing that work at sea for Canadians. 
Yeah, it's just amazing. And so the uh, the, the Twitter account is at Lebrun, so L-E-B-R-U-N, James, and then the number's 81, at Lebrun James 81. And the, the photograph that you have of Yellowknife, uh, I, I assume it's Yellowknife, that's at the top of your Twitter account as it's going through the spray on the ocean. <laughs> that is, that's yes, worth sir. a thousand words. That's amazing, <laughs> truly amazing. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, that was that was sent to me actually by someone who was just happened to be walking along the coast and saw it happen. So, yeah, very fortunate. Yeah. In about thirty seconds, what do you say to young people who are looking for a career and saying maybe the military would be for me? So, for me, th- this has been an incredible career. You are given opportunities from the first day you walk in the door to lead people, um, to be of service to your country, to actually have, you know to see tangible results. The operation that we're on right now heading down, uh, it's a counter-narcotics operation working with uh, our American allies and partner nations in the, in the region. Um, we're going to see actual results, and, and people that joined the, the Navy last year are doing that today, trained professionals um, doing the business for Canada. So, so you could do that. Yeah, it's it's a, it's absolutely amazing. One thing I do remember, I'll say this in ten seconds. One thing I do remember is we were on a gate vessel. Yeah, they don't exist anymore. But we were on a gate vessel <laughs> going down the St. Lawrence, and there was a British destroyer coming up toward us, and they gave me the uh, steering wheel. <laughs> I said steering wheel, right? <laughs> and they said, "No, I don't think so," because <laughs> I think the destroyer was starting to lower its guns at us. <laughs> because I wasn't doing the best job, but it was an amazing experience. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.